0: From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Your business can gain commercial insight, key networking opportunities, and be part of the discussion as it happens in the global aeronautical and aerospace sector. Learn how to contribute to best practices and support the world's largest body of aeronautical and aerospace professionals by joining the Royal Aeronautical Society Corporate Partner Scheme. Visit www.aerosociety.com slash membership. We are proud to present the following lecture from the 2012 Named Lecture Series. The Named Lecture Series honors distinguished aeronautical pioneers and offers a platform to high-profile speakers representing all sectors of the aeronautical and space community all content published by the royal aeronautical society is subject to our website terms of use visit aerosociety.com for more information
1: well thank you phil for that introduction i really appreciate it, and it I, I can tell you um I'm really just uh, deeply honored and, to be quite honest with you, a little intimidated uh, to be here tonight to give the 101st right lecture. It's uh, really quite an honor to be here. And I do want to uh, thank Simon Luxmore. Uh, Simon and I go back for a lot of years together when he was working at Messier-Dowdy, and I was working on programs like V-22 and the F-18 program and really enjoyed working with uh, Simon. And uh, Simon's the guy that actually invited me to, to come off and do this uh, tonight. So really nice to be here. In, uh with With such a great uh, group of folks tonight, so as uh, as you heard from Phil, um, I have a new job so you know what 's a engineer doing running human resources at a company like the Boeing company and I think you know um, you may think that um, you know this was just uh, all a big elaborate scheme for me to talk about human resources to to you tonight <laughs> instead of talking about sustainment um, i'm not going to do that but uh, in reality, uh, it says a lot about Boeing when you think about it. That when they put an engineer in charge of human resources, uh, Boeing is, a, is an engineering company. Um, you know, we have about 175,000 employees in the Boeing company, and over 30,000 of us are engineers. And so, you know, some people think of Boeing as a manufacturing company. Boeing is an engineering company, without a doubt. And so, here you are, um, stuck with the uh, human resources leader from engineering. I'm going to stick with my planned topic tonight, though, because it is one of the most important things that I've learned over the last few years. And because it really uh, has the potential to transform a lot of what we do in the aerospace industry. Uh, First, I want to offer my greetings to some of our uh, team here in the U.K. So tonight we have with us uh, Sir Roger Bone, who uh, actually uh, is president of uh, Boeing U.K. Mike Kurth is here with us tonight, and he's our managing director of Boeing U.K., And uh, not with us tonight, but David Pitchforth is our managing director of UK rotorcraft support. You know, across the UK, Boeing employs more than 1,200 people. It's a lot of folks. Uh, Each year, we spend over a billion dollars here. And we have over 250 suppliers here in the UK as well. And for uh, nearly 75 years, you've trusted us with some of your most important programs. We take that trust really seriously, very seriously, and we're working every day to be a local business. That's never clearer to me when I come over here to visit with uh, our team here in the U.K., and it turns out that I'm the one with the funny accent. (laughs) So tonight's uh, lecture honors two brothers who changed the world through their creativity, their innovation, and their hard work. It's worth remembering that wherever we labor in this field, we're standing on their shoulders and we're building upon their legacy. Tonight, I want to share a transformation that's reshaping the industry that they launched. It's a change that's sometimes hard to see, but it's reinventing how we support and design aircraft. And some of the most innovative work is taking place right here in the UK. And it's a change whose time has come. As governments face tight budgets, and that's common around the world in the UK, US, and everywhere else that we deal in the aerospace business, it offers a great way to get more capability for less money. And this change offers some lessons, not just for the defense industry, but for commercial aerospace as well. But before I get to that, I'd like just to share a little bit about my background and a few of the events that led me to be here tonight. Wherever we work, we all share one trait and that's a passion for aviation. For Orville and Wilbur Wright, that passion started when they read stories of men like Otto Lilienthal. For me, I became hooked on aviation on a Sunday afternoon when I was 17 years old. So I was born and raised just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, the youngest of four kids in a lower-middle-class family. That We traveled by car. We didn't travel by airplane. Then in, uh, in 1969... Boeing launched the 747. That same year, same year as the lunar landing, then the in the, seven, in the uh, Concorde program. The 747 went on a world tour, and in 1973, it came to the Pittsburgh Airport. And for that one weekend, they opened up the aircraft for public tours. It's hard for me to describe what was the excitement of that time. You know, today, today we all queue up for things like the latest iPhone. But back then the Queen of the Skies caused major traffic jams for as people flocked to see it. According to the newspaper, more than fifty one thousand people, fifty one thousand people toured the airplane that weekend, and my family and I were among them. I remember waiting in line for hours, and I remember that feeling of being so inspired to see it firsthand. I felt like I was getting a glimpse of the future. And I was. I just didn't realize that it was my future. So when I got to college, I studied engineering, civil engineering. I'm a convert now. And and when Boeing came to campus to recruit, I knew I wanted to work for them. That was the start of a career that has taken me around the world. Along the way, I've had a chance to work on a great program like the V-22 Osprey, the F-18 Hornet and Super Hornet, P-8 Maritime Patrol Aircraft, and many other great aircraft in between. So I share that history with you, uh, particularly for the students that are here tonight. Because when you do enter the aerospace field, you just can't imagine the types of projects you're going to work on or the types of customers that you're going to meet in the process. So um, in the past year, I've had three experiences that have led to being here tonight. And um, I'll talk about each one of them. I met the queen about a year ago. I met Lewis Hamilton, British icon, and I ran in a marathon, a half marathon, at the Wright Brothers backyard. So last December, um, I was here. Uh, Mike asked me to come and visit to uh, Earl's Court for the British military tournament, which uh, Boeing sponsors, and which was held last weekend, I believe. Um, I had the opportunity to meet Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, our team had to teach me the whole protocol. You know how to greet the Queen, how to bow. You know what to say. And I know Roger Bone and Mike Kurth were relieved at my brief encounter with the Queen. In that process, I didn't embarrass myself for the Boeing company or cause an international incident. And I'm really hoping that my luck holds out here tonight as well. (laughs) Uh, The second event was this summer when my son and I uh, got to meet that great British icon, Lewis Hamilton, at the uh, Formula One race in Monaco. Now, you might assume, okay, I'm an American. I only like uh, one type of race car, one that only makes left-hand turns. But... Um, in, re- in reality, m- both my son and I are big F1 fans, and you know we love the format and we love the technology that's uh, that's involved. And those two meetings, you know, meeting the Queen and meeting the Lewis Hamilton, um, those two meetings capture a duality about the UK that I've always admired. You know, great historic traditions live side by side with cutting edge innovation. When I was working on the V22 program, I remember uh, visiting a supplier here in the UK. They were creating parts for that technical technical wonder, the V22. And they were doing it in a factory that had been operating for centuries. Tradition and innovation go hand in hand. (coughs) A few months after the F1 race, I was in a different race. I ran a half marathon in the U.S. uh, with some of our customers. This was in Dayton, Ohio, the birthplace of Orville Wright. And the race course was on the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I remember running, trying to keep up with our customers. And, and they are fast, by the way, but they're also a lot younger than me. And, and as you look to one side, you see these very cool modern aircraft. And when you look to the other side, you see this beautiful green field. And it's actually called Huffman Prairie. And it's where Wilbur and Orville tested their third Wright Flyer. And it made me think about what I'd say here tonight. But it was it was that perfect metaphor for what we all, all do in aviation. We're running forward towards new innovations. We're trying to keep pace with our customers. And it is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Every day on the bases, in the depots, and in the fields where they serve. And we're all aware that just over our shoulder is this great history, this great legacy launched by two remarkable brothers. Uh, It's in that spirit that I've come to share an idea you might call 21st century sustainment tonight. If you think about the life of an aircraft, there's design, development, delivery, use, and retirement. Those first few stages seem to get all the attention. Sustainment includes all the services and support that come after delivery. It covers everything from fixing battle damage, upgrading equipment, training flight crews, and maintenance teams. Sometimes it's called through life sustainment or life cycle support. And so uh, tonight, you know, I've I've titled my talk From Afterthought to Afterburner because it captures how sustainment, I I believe, is evolving. And the history here really is, is fascinating. You know, in the early days of the jet engine, the focus was on the turbine itself. You know, what happened downstream after the turbine was merely an afterthought. Then in the 1940s, innovators like the UK's Frank Whittle realized that if you introduced fuel after the turbine, you could reheat the exhaust and increase the thrust. It showed that innovation after the turbine could generate tremendous power. An area that was overlooked and undervalued suddenly became a source of new capabilities. The same thing's happening with sustainment. For decades, it's been seen as the dull part of an aircraft's life cycle, not a place for innovation or new capabilities. But in the past 10 to 15 years or so, that has changed. Sustainment is gradually becoming recognized as a place where innovation is delivering new power. I believe that a quiet revolution is transforming sustainment. It doesn't have to sparkle of design, but it's moving from a backwater to a new front line as customers demand more value for money. 21st century sustainment is a new model of support that delivers more readiness and capability for less money. It will transform, not just how aircraft are supported, but how they're designed, and how companies and governments work together. And this revolution is just starting to unfold. Now, I'm not here to give you all the answers, because the truth is, you know, we're all still learning. We're especially learning from our partnership with the Ministry of Defense right here in the UK. And tonight I'd like to share some of those lessons. So, you know, why this change? Behind every revolution are driving forces. This revolution is being driven by money, missions, and technology. So first, the money. It's no secret the governments around the world are facing serious budget pressure. It turns out that sustainment is the largest share of a plane's lifetime cost. Design and development consume just about 25% of an aircraft's lifetime cost. Where is the other 75%? Sustainment. Any customer who wants to save money must tackle sustainment. Because it's such a big share of the cost, a small change can make a huge difference. But thanks to innovation, we're not talking about small change. For example, one of our partnering teams here in the U.K., has cut the cost of procuring and developing services for an MOD program by 40%. And our program to support the RAF helicopter fleet has increased flying flying hours by 50% over the last five years while reducing the cost per flying hour. These are are critical gains in an era, era when every flying hour and every pound counts. But it's not just about saving money lives are at stake. And that's the second driving force. The need to help our customers succeed in their mission. Members of our armed services rely on us. It's a responsibility we take very seriously. It's a responsibility we take very seriously, and we are humbled to be trusted with such important work. Sustainment is about making warfighters have what they need, when they need it, and as efficiently as possible. If we can fix an aircraft in theater instead of having to ship it back home, our servicemen and women can do their jobs better, faster, and safer. Conversely, if we, air, if we can modify an aircraft to give a, a specific upgrade, without making it more difficult to to support or more expensive to support over the long haul, it's a win-win. And now we have the analytical tools to do just that. The third driver is technology. Some of the tools I'll mention tonight were not available 10 or even 5 years ago. So those are the drivers of this revolution. Uh, Before I go any further, I have to admit that I only recently became interested in sustainment. In fact, if you told me four years ago that I'd be standing here today talking about how exciting the support business is, I don't think I, I would have believed you. <laughs> but that's also true if you told me six months ago I'd, I'd be taking over the human resources role at <laughs> Boeing as well. But I guess you know uh, these are some of the surprises when you can't hold a steady job.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, um, three years ago, I was working on uh, in Boeing military aircraft, and I was really having a, a blast doing it. And uh when I was asked to lead services and support, I really wasn't sure I wanted the job. You know, when I thought about it, you know, I'm I'm not a logistics guy. Uh, you know, uh, what we re- we refer to around Boeing as a loggy. So, you know, what could I bring to the to the job? Services seemed to me to be low tech. You know, you know, wrenches and grease boards and repairing old things didn't seem as exciting as working on new things. And then there was this reputation. And when I left Boeing Military Aircraft, my colleagues gave me a framed piece of artwork. Sounds pretty nice, right? Um, It was a picture of a donkey. Uh, More specifically, it was actually the backside of a donkey. As they put it, I was going to the tail end of the business. Only they didn't use the word tail. They used that three-letter synonym. So I'll just let you picture that for a moment. But I really can't blame them. Uh, That's the reputation in some places that the support business had in Boeing. And in many places around the, the world, it still has. But when I started the job in 2009, I began to realize that some of my assumptions were wrong. I climbed into some of the simulators that we used to train pilots. I mean, they were really cutting-edge, uh, advanced technology activity. I looked at some of the tools we used to analyze data, and I was blown away by their sophistication. I was also impressed by the urgency of the work. In you know, the cycle time in our business, aerospace product development, is measured in years. In the support business, when a customer needs something, You get a phone call in the middle of the night. An aircraft's down, needs to part immediately. The mission depends on it. You get that plane back on its way, and when you do, you feel great, this great sense of accomplishment. In many cases, we're embedded with the warfighters in theater, and the immediacy immediacy is even more relevant. There is a sense of instant gratification in this job that I've never really felt before. Support may be the tail end of the business, but sometimes the tail wags the dog. Now, the second key, oh, excuse me, if there is one common trait of the, the, the customers that we serve around the world, it's their need to get more for less. That really drives every customer that we seem to have any place we go in around the world. And so far, we've fought, figured out that there are five keys to delivering more value for money for our customers. And they're helpful, I think, wherever you work in aerospace. They're the keys to 21st century sustainment. The first key is to be proactive rather than reactive. It starts with being proactive in airplane design. Treating sustainment as a front-end priority, not an aftermarket problem. That means making design decisions that enable easy support and upgrades early on in the process. It requires being proactive in providing support. Instead of waiting for a part to fail, you monitor an aircraft's health and act before problems occur. It means defining prognostics into aircraft systems that can monitor the health and well-being of an aircraft as it performs its mission and sends that info back to ground stations while the aircraft is still in the air. And when a plane does need to be repaired, you set up the supply chain so that all the parts are waiting for the plane to arrive instead of the plane waiting for the parts to arrive. The second key to 21st century sustainment is exploiting data, using data to find the sweet spot of operations from how many spares you'll need and where to keep them, to incorporating design changes to improve reliability so that you need less of them in the first place. Of course, relying on data is nothing new. You know, more than a century ago, the Wright brothers built a wind tunnel to measure different wing designs. What's changed today is the technology. We've developed tools to turn data into the information that can be analyzed quickly and applied to our operations. We've developed tools, those tools over the course of the last five, ten years and has spent over $150 million in that investment to have those tools so that we can make smart choices with certainty. You can see that change in how we handle spare parts, which has always been a tricky balance for us. You know, order too many uh, spares and you're wasting money. Order too few and you can't make repairs quickly and you lose availability. Decades ago... uh, particularly around Boeing, there was this one guidance that we used for how many spares you need. Have a hunch, buy a bunch. <laughs> We'd make assumptions, you know, with a bit of analysis, but in the long run, you'd make an assumption. you say, well, we're going to spare this element at 30%. It wasn't necessarily based on accurate data, so we bought more often. We bought more than we needed just to be on the safe side, have safety stock. Those assumptions wasted money. Today in 21st century sustainment, we don't rely on assumptions, we rely on algorithms. We use sophisticated modeling and forecasting tools. Our optimization model looks at dozens of parameters. When we started applying these tools to existing supply chains, we found that we we could reduce the inventory by 15 to 30% while maintaining or even improving fleet readiness. That means less waste, more value for the customer's money, while still getting planes back in the air, quickly and efficiently. And a great example of that's occurring here in the UK. Uh, we maintain the Chinook helicopters for the Royal Air Force. Chinooks provide the heavy lift for the armed forces here. 3 years ago, we had a large stock of spares that were set aside from general stock in readiness to support the helicopters as they were deployed worldwide. We figured that we didn't need to set aside so many spares. Fortunately, we didn't have to rely on that hunch. We ran the analysis What did we find? The deployed force wouldn't need half of those spares. Think about the size of the pack-up kit and everything that's required to go off and make that happen. We released several hundred thousand dollars' worth of stock back into general spares. That decision improved the spares' availability for deployed aircraft. It reduced the physical size and weight of the spares' uh, cargo and saved the RAF a ton of money. We also used data to find the ideal level of readiness and availability. Now, for those of you who work on the commercial side, I think you'd expect planes to be you know, up and available you know, 100% of the time or close to 100% of the time as possible. But on the defense side, we found that not every mission demands 100% uptime. When you pay for availability you don't need, you're wasting money. We found that for each platform, there's an ideal level of readiness. It's a sweet spot that lets you complete your mission at the lowest possible cost. For example, in supporting the C-17 for customers around the world, we found the sweet spot is an availability percent in the high 80s. It gives you the most bang for your buck, or in this case, the most performance for the pound. If a customer tells us they want 100% availability, we'll try our hardest to go off and give it to them, but these days, customers want the most value for money. Today, we can find the ideal mix based on our customers' needs, and we can fine-tune our work, to hit that target. And it's not just about forecasting. The entire process of handling parts has gone digital. A dozen years ago, when a part showed up on your dock, someone had to be there to receive it. To check your inventory, you had to walk the warehouse from bin to bin, counting parts with a clipboard. If there was a discrepancy, you had to look it up in the maintenance (coughs) control books. To order more spares, you had to submit a request by fax. Today, all that data is fed into digital systems. Computers find the discrepancies, track the parts, place the orders, assign the jobs. In the past, we managed parts in our heads and on paper. Today, computers manage and analyze faster than we ever could. Thanks to RFID tags and sensors, it happens electronically and automatically. And we now have complete visibility of every asset. We went from clipboards and pencils to electrons. saving us man hours, saving us money, and it's helping our troops complete their missions. The third key, and I think it's one of the most important, is uh, to pay for performance. In the past, customers would pay for a product like a helicopter, but what they really wanted was performance, a certain number of flying hours. When you structure a contract to deliver performance, it ensures that the customer and the contractor are both pushing for the same goal. And when you're both driving in the same direction, you become much more efficient. One way to do that is through a performance-based logistics contract, a PBL. PBL started in the U.S. in the 1990s. Back then, it was interesting. The cost of support was rising, and the readiness and reliability of the systems were failing. In a PBL, the customer buys outcomes, not individual parts or services. Done well, these contracts can increase readiness and guarantee availability at a much lower cost. They also transfer risk from the government to the contractor. For example, on the C 17 support program for the U.S., we exceeded the required readiness rates for 10 consecutive years. And from 2004 to 2011, we reduced the cost per flight hour by 29%, while adding 12 bases and over 100 aircraft. It saved the customer more than a billion dollars. That's what a PBL can deliver especially if it's set up the correct way. Continuous improvement is always part of the contract. It's also important to make it long-term rather than a year-to-year contract. A longer contract gives industry an incentive to invest in innovation that will make the system more reliable. And it gives you time to analyze how a platform performs and where you can make gains in reliability and maintainability improvements. Our contract to support the RAF's Chinook helicopters runs until the year 2040. It's renewable every 5 years. That long time frame gives us a strong incentive to keep investing in the program. And it shows in the results. Over the last 5 years, fleet flying hours have increased by 50% and scheduled maintenance times have been reduced by 57%. As I mentioned, our contract with the RAF comes up for renewal and repricing every 5 years when it came up for renewal last year, after all those performance gains, we did reprice it. We lowered the price. That's the power of paying for performance. The fourth key is to leverage global networks. Instead of building a new infrastructure, we try to tap into existing infrastructure. And let me share a couple of examples. Boeing has a global support system for our commercial aircraft. Often, we can tap into that network to help our customers much faster than through traditional military channels. For example, if a P-8, the military version of a 737, is moving to the current theater and has a hydraulic issue, it might have to wait for a part at a place like the Singapore airport, and it could wait for three, four five days for that part to arrive. But there's a faster option. Boeing has a commercial operation at Singapore. We can have a part sent from across the runway from our commercial spares the plane could be on its way in a few hours. So we're always looking for ways to tap into existing global networks, and not just for parts, but for best practices as well. We take this approach from a global standpoint when we support the C-17. The C-17 is flown by six countries, including the UK, plus the 12-member Strategic Air Capability Initiative of NATO and Partnership for Peace Nations. And while each customer operates the aircraft a little bit differently, we treat those different operations as one big virtual fleet. That gives our customers economies of scale that they otherwise wouldn't have. But when we discover a best practice at one customer, we share it with the others. That way, every customer gains from the benefits of any customer. That's the power of a global approach. The final key to 21st century sustainment is to partner in new ways. This isn't just about handing off a job to a contractor. It's about working together hand-in-hand. One example is our work helping the Ministry of Defense optimize its logistics information services. The MOD wanted to know where it could reduce its inventory, reduce storage, and improve utilization. But there was a problem. The information was trapped in hundreds of different systems. And if you can't see all the data, you can't make good decisions. We've been dealing with that challenge inside Boeing as well, and I can tell you it really is a journey. Two years ago, we were awarded the contract as the delivery partner for an MOD program called LogNec. And now we're partners in that journey with the MOD, sharing our best practices and our lessons learned. We've nearly completed the first phase, which is moving all the applications into a modern infrastructure. And the really exciting part is approaching when the MOD can see the information it needs to make smart decisions. To achieve its goals. The reason this effort is working is because of a very strong partnering culture. In fact, the British Standards Institution recently recognized the MOD and the Boeing team as the first government industry team to concurrently achieve the British Standard for collaborative working. Our partnership with the MOD uh, to exploit the data and then enjoy the savings. When you partner this closely, the government just doesn't get what's required by the contract. It gets much more. For example, on the Chinook program, we saw opportunities to help the RAF get services and upgrades faster, over and above what's required by our contract. We worked with our partners to make that happen, and it's had a huge impact. For example, we worked with Vector Aerospace to reduce the cycle time for major maintenance by 50%. And we worked with Augusta Westland and others to co-locate some work. The result? The RAF got its defensive aid suite upgrade installed one year faster than previously scheduled. Critical upgrades to communications and friends and foe systems have been completed 18 months ahead of schedule. That's the power of partnership. Today, we are evolving the nature of our partnerships. For our first 70 years here in the U.K., we were an American company doing business in the U.K. Then in 2008, we became a U.K. company. Boeing Defense UK We did so with one goal in mind To be local and self-sustaining And we've achieved that Over the last five years We've gone from a ratio of 20% locally hired employees And 80% expats To 90% local And just 10% expats We used to rely On US expats to work on UK programs Now we've completely shifted Our leadership and responsibility To the local team In the past two years, 233 Ministry of Defense employees have now become Boeing employees. They've gained access to a global network of resources. They've used these resources and their own expertise to deliver more value for the MOD at a lower cost. Today, our UK team reaches back into the U.S. products design, taps into Boeing's global resources, and uses local industry as partners to deliver on our promises. Boeing Defense UK is a British company, run by British leaders, staffed by British employees, and supporting the British community. We want our team to be invited to meet the Queen and then actually know how to do it without having somebody like me, goofball like me, to be trained to go off and do it himself. That's our vision for partnership with you in the 21st century. So before I take your questions, let me wrap up. Ever since the Wright Brothers' first flight... All of us who work in aerospace, we've been striving to reach further, faster, and higher. Sometimes we do it through new innovations and new products, and sometimes we do it through a new process. The process of supporting airplanes is being reinvented as we speak. An area that was once overlooked is now helping customers to get more for less, driven by tight budgets, critical missions, and new technology. And so far, we've learned the five keys to this new approach are being proactive, exploiting the data, paying for performance, leveraging global networks, and partnering in news way, new ways. Together, these ideas are helping us do more with less. In a larger sense, 21st century sustainment is about innovation that never ends. When you think about it, this underlying idea is not very new at all. It's the same approach that Wilbur and Orville used in their bicycle shop in Ohio, on the Huffman Prairie, and above the dunes of Kitty Hawk. We're all running forward, running towards new innovations and new horizons, mindful that that legacy of those two amazing brothers is still in sight, just over our shoulder. Thank you very much.